My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talked to Hankerin Fernell of Runehammer Games. This was a very exciting conversation for me because Hankerin's writing with ICRPG came at kind of a critical time for me when I was a fledgling DM, um, as we talk about a little bit later on in the episode. A couple topics covered during the conversation are meta-knowledge and what the players and the characters know. We talk about endings and maybe when you should end a campaign. We talk a little bit about DM transparency and how much knowledge the DM should be sharing with the players. And at the end, we talk a little bit about presence. I really hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I had a blast talking to Hankerin. One quick announcement before we get started. I am running a Star Wars RPG one-shot for anybody who would like to try out the system or maybe you've played before. And the details for that are on the Discord server, and there's also a sign-up event on the Discord server. So if you are interested, go check it out. That game will be running next Friday, November 5th, at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Go check it out. It should be a fun time, especially if you are interested in just trying out the system. And with that out of the way, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Hankrin Fernell from Runehammer Games. Welcome, Hankrin. Hello, hello. Hi, everybody out there. Uh, really excited to have you on. Um, you were kind of a big inspiration for me when I was uh, a fledgling DM and just kind of getting into the hobby. So uh, ICRPG cool. and uh, a lot of your, your books and your writing really, I think, helped kind of shape my um, game mastering style a little bit. Uh, so awesome. super excited to have you on. Um, Hankren, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? Um, well, that would be a, a story of the 80s, <laughs> I suppose. I guess the the gateway drug for me for um, tabletop was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Usagi Yojimbo. And I had been, uh, as a very young kid, trying to draw Usagi Yojimbo. Really, it's one of the first things I can remember, honestly. And then... As my drawing kind of kept going and going, I, I discovered TMNT, which kind of came after Usagi Ojimbo, and um, started trying to draw TMNT, and oddly enough, didn't really know about D&D until well into getting into role-playing. Um, the first thing that I found out about that there was even such a thing, which I just thought it was sort of a, like a draw-your-own-art board game, um, was TMNT by Palladium and uh, Rifts. And so... Me and like three friends got those two games and completely didn't understand <laughs> what we were supposed to. I think we played them completely wrong the entire time, but that's okay. Uh, we were having a good time. And then uh, years later, so we did that all through junior high. And then as high school was starting, I, I skipped ninth grade. And when I went to high school, I met like an entirely new group of people because of that, that skip. And um, one of the people that I met was, and this is a completely true story, it's kind of crazy, was this cool cat named Elrond. And um, <laughs> his parents, yeah, were, were diehard Tolkien fans, named him Elrond. And not only was his name Elrond, he was like into Lord of the Rings. And when he found out about our sort of wacky, like um, kind of dimension hopping mutant animal people role-playing game he came in and he was the one who's like yo there's like a fantasy version of this and we're like what uh-uh and 
that's like how you know things were before the internet you just had to meet some guy to, to like find out there was a thing and so then we found out about fantasy and then from there we got into fantasy hero um and you know got a better dm who was kind of an older kid and then really started discovering you know what it really was like to have like a two-year campaign and like really kind of leaned into it and then you know college and you're playing like college is the ultimate time to play D D. Um, and it just kind of chain reacted from there. So that, that's how it all began. And what was your first system that you ever DM'd in? Uh, where I ran the game um, was the very beginning, but I wouldn't call it Palladium because we kind of didn't get it. You know, like we had, you know, like 12-year-old attention spans. So we weren't like, you know, not to say anything bad about 12-year-olds out there who may be listening, but, you know, there's a lot to do when you're 12. <laughs> um and so we kind of just like skimmed the sort of beginning part and maybe looked at kind of some of the mutant animals and some of the cool weapons listings and stuff. And then we just filled in the blanks. And I was the GM at the very beginning because I was kind of the one that was the most interested. So we just kind of invented this sort of 3D6 system. And it was basically just there's a number and you got to beat it with 3D6 and you get bonuses. And you get bonuses for saying cool things or for because your shotgun's cool or whatever. And that was really it. So... I don't, that's some kind of, you know, total uh, butchery of like maybe a GURPS type system, <laughs> but, but it was just our own kind of 3D6 rollover. Um, and as far as like the details, the details all came from Palladium. And then we started learning more about, you know, like how Perry would work in TMNT, for example, which looking back on it now is so clunky and slow and everything. But, but back then it seemed so cool. Like after you play like three months, to add something like a reaction type element to a game, it just completely like expanded our, our game experience greatly. It's a, it seems kind of silly saying it now, but like adding parry or kind of like held actions was just like mind blowing to us. <laughs> but that was kind of the first system that that I sort of ran. We called the game Living Weapon at the time, so we were like these kind of a, kind of like the Van Damme movie Cyborg. We really vibed on that old film. That was kind of our inspiration mixed with TMNT. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it sounds like you, like you said, you kind of had a your own little system, and it it actually sounds like it developed into something that you could potentially see nowadays in terms of like you had specific mechanics and and rolling mechanics that you were using. So um, it's kind of funny that you read through the book and then just kind of came up with your own RPG esque uh, mechanics for it. Yeah, and I I think the the idea of playing the game that is. That is on paper is a is a bit of a myth. I I would argue that a lot of people out there kind of aren't quite sure how to get deep into knowing the rules, and so they kind of got their own. And I think we've all played at those tables, and they're great. So I, I don't think we were an exception. We were kind of just doing that that RPG thing. <laughs> Do what makes sense and and yeah. make it easy enough that you can run it. That's a which is good. Um, when you're running games now, is there certain things that you do for like prepping a session? Yeah, I guess so. I have I have my habits like we all do. My kind of really they're more like affectations or almost like mnemonic devices uh, that give me the confidence to feel comfortable that the session's going to happen. I think for a lot of us, like the prep isn't necessarily like a manual that we're there then we're going to read during the session when our friends show up. Um, for me, I really believe that prep is almost like a well, like I said, like a mnemonic device, it's a, it's a way to prepare yourself for the unpreparable and to give yourself that confidence of like, yeah, I, I think I got this, like whatever this may become, 
I think I got this. Um, so for me, that's usually a, it's a single spread, meaning two facing pages. I don't like to turn the page during a session. So I try to limit all of a session's concepts to like bullet points and drawings on facing pages of my journal. And that way the journal can just lay down on the table and I'm never really, you know, flipping it or looking around. Um, and I, I guess that's sort of my, my fundamental method is I'll sit down with a thing, I'll write the session number at the top, and then I'll just start writing whatever bullets come to mind. And I don't really look at them all that much um, later. It's more like cementing them in my mind, like sort of, you know, maybe how a stage actor would sort of prepare a scene. They don't necessarily read that scene. They kind of just have a sense for what the truths are and the emotions and the feel. And then when all the craziness kind of starts, you know, uh, unfolding in front of you, you don't feel that your prep is being undone. You just feel you're sort of, you know, you're flowing with this sort of process that's happening. Right. And you know what, you have a general sense of how NPCs and things or the environment is going to react to various player actions. Because uh, you can't know what their actions are going to be, but you can know how things are likely to respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can know that the cobalt chemist is like listening closely. So that takes an extremely tiny amount of text to prepare that, but that gives you a ton, you know, like just knowing maybe where that cobalt is and that he's listening, that gives you a lot of nice context. And a lot of times I'll just straight up like tell meta things to my players that come from my preparation. So, you know, I'll just straight tell them they're like, there may be things that are like listening to you guys. So this might be a fun session for you guys to try to be freaking quiet for one. Yeah, I just put it right out there. And, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, that's kind of like a spoiler, or you're just handing it to them. Oh, no, not at all. You know, anybody who's played a four or five hour session, you know that anything said in the first 20 minutes is completely forgotten by hour three. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of revel in not only playing with my journal face up open on the table, um, but also sometimes just like directly telling players the bullets that I've written down. And and we we build the sort of Rubik's Cube out of those bullets rather than me sort of harboring these secrets that I'm going to regale them with. That kind of reminds me of the like uh, movie director style uh, where like if you're watching a, some type of a movie, you the audience tends to know more information than the characters do. Mm. And that is what causes some of the suspense versus like just going in completely blind and never knowing those, those other little things. Right. Like yeah. uh, there's two people sitting at a table and they're talking, but the camera pans out and there's a bomb ticking down, you know, by their feet. That gives us a lot of suspense as the audience, but the characters don't know that it's happening. And that's kind of where some of that tension is coming from. A absolutely. Perfect example. And I, I will often be that, that game master who tells the players to be aware of that tension. Like I, I will constantly remind them kind of of the fundamentals of what role-playing is. You know, I'll be like, okay, you guys, I'm just talking to you as players right now, blah, 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 blah. And I want everybody to take a moment to meditate on how different each character's knowledge is rather, you know, compared to what I just told you. And I just like, I'm just very dry and and sort of forward <laughs> with my style. So I like I like to be that camera as you describe it. I love that that analogy. You know, all of us at the table are kind of the camera and then we get to look down into this world and we can talk about the birds outside and how they're about to attack and it doesn't ruin the suspense for the character. As a matter of fact, as you point out, it kind of makes it worse. And do you find when you're doing that do your players tend to lean into the 
knowledge that their character has versus uh, kind of making optimal choices based on that that meta knowledge mm -hmm. that they have. Well, I think uh, every game master has to be honest that it's like hit and miss with everything. You know, every idea you have is hit and miss. You know, there are times when the magic is so thick you could cut it with a knife, and you're just like. There are reason people have these like you know decades long memories of things that happen at the table and there are other moments where it kind of falls flat and you get like incredulity you know you get kind of like what <laughs> seriously dude nah man we need to take a smoke break on that that's, that's dumb <laughs> you know what i mean and you just kind of you got to just take your licks and not take it personal you know and like oh darn i thought they were going to buy into my masterpiece you know that's a really good way to get get your feelings hurt honestly um whereas you treat it more like you know just friends at a table kind of talking about D D like thing uh, i don't think you ever really take it personally if something falls on its face which we gotta we gotta be honest it happens at least 30 percent of the time maybe half <laughs> and that's just you just gotta laugh and go with it <laughs> i i definitely have had sessions where some are really good and then other ones are like ah that just doesn't just didn't feel like it was, you know, executed as well as it maybe could have been. Yeah, and that, and that variable to me is the game, especially if you if you look at the game master as a player. That's kind of the game that the game master is playing. Is you're kind of like you're almost playing a roulette with like your 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 friend's emotion. And every once in a while, the ball will land right on black thirteen, and they're just like shocked, and one guy has a tear in his eye and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then other times. You can go a whole night and you never even like make one bet. It all just is kind of on its face. You know, you just got to have a good time either way. <laughs> when you run your games, um, do you like to do theater of the mind or do you like to have uh, like battle maps and stuff? What's kind of your style there? Uh, over the years, I've done all. Um, I, I, as you know, you well know from YouTube and everything, I really leaned on the fully realized world for a while. Had a great time with that, partially because I had a really big kind of empty house. So there was plenty of room for all that terrain to live. Um, but right now, I'm doing, I would say it's kind of a three-quarter theater of the mind. But I am a strong believer there has to be something to stare at any time that human beings gather. It, it's really strange, unless it's some kind of therapy session where you're staring at each other, which is super intense. Like, there has to be something to look at for any gathering. And, like, the oldest version of this that we know is a campfire. Like, this is something that everyone has experienced of the the comforting joy of like staring into a campfire while talking it's like probably one of our oldest you know like instincts of comfort as humans and so i do believe that no matter how theater of the mind you go which i do think is the most powerful form of the game because it, it frees you the most um i think you have to have something there in the center of the table that is worth pondering and that's kind of how i've arrived at this kind of index card kind of style which is you can even, you know, in its simplest form, you just write things on cards. Like you write the word mountain on a card. And then on another one, you write, you know, a town name, maybe with two little buildings because, you know, you can't draw and they're just like dumb little lumps. But still, those two index cards laid on the table and their accidental proximity or orientation to each other are something that players can lock their minds onto and, and use it as a gateway into imagining the world. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm doing. And sometimes I'll do more, like I'll draw ahead of time. So I'm using all my drawing skill and like, ooh, look at this. You know, I have an index card for each room in this dungeon and it has a little number on it. And like other times, 
most of the time, to be honest, we're we're unfolding things as they go, and I'll just pull an index card out and scrawl on it in a matter of 20 seconds and slap it down on the table, and we get kind of these messes. And this mess that forms on the table sort of is the session. Um, so mostly theater of the mind, but with enough reference on the table that the sheet isn't the only thing to look at. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I, I do tend to find that when it's just theater of the mind, if there's not like a drawing or something, it can get, you can kind of uh, disengage with, with what's happening. Yeah. Um, so having those little reference points just to kind of subconsciously mull over uh, definitely is a big help. Um, yeah, and it's it's the power of the, the fully realized world. You know, when you're making a full 3D terrain world and you have color miniatures for everything encountered and you have terrain and every, for everything that happens, it is hypnotic to the players. They cannot pull their eyes away from all that cool 3D art, but you there's a lot of really strict limitations that come with it. You know, as far as leaving, as far as players you know going off script as far as returning to previous locations and there are so many parts of the game that i think are really cool that become really quite prohibited if you expect to show the players everything in in 3d color yeah i mean you just have limitations even in what you can even build at the table (laughs) absolutely yeah and it's mainly your time (laughs) you know so if you're an adult with a job like (laughs) it is very difficult to build entire worlds and uh, this is probably an easy question, but since it's in the pandemic, but do you um, do you tend to play your games online nowadays? Well, uh, I'm split right now. I have one group um, which is online, and then my one group which is in my basement. Um, but you know, yeah, like everybody, for a couple of years there, I was playing all online, especially when I was kind of transitioning. Even before quarantine, uh, I was transitioning away from Five E. So we did our Five E campaign in full 3D. Uh, we got up, I think our highest level in the group was level 11, and we got to that point. We had a conclusion to our campaign, and that group kind of dissipated as as was natural. And then I just took a break. I took about a year-long break. And then as that break was sort of, you know, making me go crazy, got into online, basically to branch out. I wanted to play more sci-fi. Um, and, you know, my former group had kind of rejiggered into different groups with each other and stuff. And so... Um, it was kind of natural flow toward online at first. Um, and then, you know, we all obviously became dependent on it. But right when we could, when, basically when we were all vaccinated, we, we initiated the basement. Um, and do you prefer to play in person? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to me, the only advantage of playing online is the people, you know, that you can access friends from far away. That's the only reason. I mean, everything else about it is, I mean, it has those limitations that 3D terrain has in spades. You know, if you're presented a map and you're playing online, it's assumed you're going to play in that map for a while. I think it's everyone at the table knows that there was some back-end work by the Game Master to make that and to get the, the tokens in there and all that kind of stuff. And so there's this this kind of unspoken agreement that you play what you see. And that can be a blast. It can still be fun, but it's compared to like a, a real table game, yeah, it can be very, very limiting. Um so you mentioned that you've been wanting to branch out into other systems. What are you playing now? And then like, what, uh, what new systems haven't you tried yet that you would like to? Right now, we're, we're neck deep in old school essentials, but with some hacks that we've done. Some of the hacks are significant. Like We don't use attack rolls. We roll under our stats to attack. Um, 
that way we never have to worry about uh, enemy armor class and stuff. If if we want a tough to hit enemy, we just put a penalty on the rolls, stuff like that. But it's basically old school essentials. I use the advanced fantasy books. Uh, the players get the advanced fantasy player book, and I get the referee book. And those really are the two books that we absolutely hover around. So we do all their items, all their monsters. We use all their tables and, and good stuff like that. So we're we're just eyeballs deep in uh, old school essentials. And as far as like where I'm headed. Um, obviously looking forward to playing Viking Death Squad this coming year, um, but kind of him just waiting for those books to reach people. I mean, people have, a lot of people uh, have the PDF, but until the physical books get in people's hands, I've noticed, you know, like sort of uh, the movement doesn't really begin. So um, Viking Death Squad will be really fun. And then the one I'm dabbling with that's the sort of furthest out right now is 2D20, uh, Modifius' system. And... The more that I look into that, the more exciting it is. Um, that's a little ways off, though, but I'm just, I'm at that stage where I've got a spiral notebook and I'm just sort of rewriting the rules to learn them. So, like, only a few days of interest in, but working with Modifius um, as my publisher, that just sort of got me interested in some of their stuff and, uh, you know, starting to research 2D20. And I really liked how it was presented in the, uh, the Dishonored book really clean and tight and cool and i was like oh man this has a lot of fun difference to it because i know that our ose group will probably be at their conclusion early next year and so we're starting to think about switching to sci-fi and switching to a new system so everybody can kind of learn together so that's where i'm headed um i've heard people mention the 2d20 system but i have not really explained anywhere yeah i mean it's just a a roll under d20 dice pool design um, between between one and five d20 on a on a main sort of test roll with some nice little peripheral rules about sort of um, you know hero points is what we call them in our game but they call them momentum and stuff and like little points that come from cool role play that serve as a sort of micro economy you're really not anything that will shake the pillars of the earth honestly um, but a, a nice execution on a small count dice pool which is also what my design Viking death squad was kind of you know aiming for a one to six d6 dice pool system i think we all dream about dice pools because they're really fun but many of their executions in the past they kind of get out of hand you know shadow run being the funniest one where you get like 30 d6 and stuff it's kind of almost comical so i think catching that dream and making it simple and as flexible as like a d20 rollover has been an ongoing sort of nut to crack <laughs> for our hobby yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of dice pools. My first uh, introduction into RPGs was the Star Wars games by Fantasy Flight with Absolutely. their like custom narrative dice pools. So yeah. everything else is like, okay, can I have can I have dice pools again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially once you learn the symbols and stuff, I imagine it's like it's it starts to feel very expansive, and you come back to little numbers, and you're like, oh. <laughs> I, I really like the. Um, the different perspectives that you can get on a roll where you can succeed but have something bad happen or you can fail but have something good happen. You know, there's kind of two axes of success, I guess, or of, yeah. of what happens. Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost like like reading tea leaves. Like there's this kind of roll that happens and then there's a moment of like leaning in. <laughs> yeah, to actually see what happened yeah let's interpret this yeah yeah and that, and that is the fun how can you explain your viking death squad uh mechanic it's it's real simple it's um it's rolled targets so your gm is choosing targets that are either two three four 
and in extreme cases five dice and so you don't have fixed targets and so that's the first piece so um you know how hard is is this scene going to be or how fast is this cybernetic dog that you're fighting and instead of having a number to look up they just are choosing a really simple sort of category and they roll it and so like that's the first point of luck that players are hoping for so that's the first component is wildly swingy targets and so you can you can even fight the same monster twice and have it be really hard one time and really easy so that's that part and then the other part is that players are using gear skills narrative etc to get their d6s up as high as they can towards six and seven dice and then trying to beat that target and that's your your fundamental sort of piece and then there's lots of other pieces in there there's no hit points in the game if you're hit without armor you're insta killed um let's see what else is there there are there are like a lot of fun little bubbles to fill out so that you can improve your skills over time by succeeding and checking off little bubbles um their gear is sort of destroyed all the time like all the gear no matter what kind of gear it is in the game can take three hits and it's destroyed and so you're kind of on a never-ending search for gear in this game uh, another way of seeing the the no hit points aspect is that anyone who can do repair or who can create or craft gear kind of becomes a healer in a in a sure. strange roundabout way um and really that's it and the rest is just a a very very kind of out there world which i i don't really do in a lot of my work but on this one i kind of had a real wild hair to make a very unfamiliar um world in which to play where i wasn't just saying hey take these cool systems and play them however you want and in this one i'm more like no i have a crazy idea for a world i want to see if you guys want to go with me on this super weird journey <laughs> into this world. <laughs> um, I find the, the, the no hit points thing interesting because there's a lot of, you know, games outside of D and D that kind of handle hit points differently with like conditions and, and different things like that. And mm. the, the idea that your health is just kind of your gear and it being destroyed over time Um is really interesting to me just from a from a gameplay perspective because then like you said you're constantly trying to scavenge and and find stuff or repair stuff um yeah it kind of changes the dynamics a little bit it, it does it you still will find some familiar swinging um back and forth but i i think that there's more even than a mechanical change i think there's a tone change and it's the tone of this far in the future you know a hundred centuries from now Things are so deadly and so powerful. If you don't have a means to protect yourself, you're just you're just like you know vaporized. You're just turned to embers and you blow away on the wind. You know, like. <laughs> and I I think that feel is even more powerful in in Death Squad than the mechanics of the armor. And there also are going to be times in the game where there is no scavenging or creating. It is not available to you. Kind of like sometimes in D and D where you can't rest. You know, you're, yeah. too, you're too in the thick of it. And in that first two hours, everybody blows their spells <laughs> and, like, eats all the potions. And so you have, like, a four-hour or even multiple sessions, you know, stint there where you can't rest and you don't have any healing. And that is going to happen in Death Squad as well. It's just a lot easier to explain. It's it's very easy to imagine environments where you will not be able to find usable equipment. Right. Um, yeah, like natural environments or destructive environments. They're so easy to conjure up. Whereas that rare case in D&D where there's absolutely no way to get recovery, it, it takes a GM a lot to push a group to that point. Right, you really got to have them like in a dungeon somewhere where they're 
constantly being either attacked or bumping into things yeah to to really prevent them from just hunkering down for a minute and and resting yeah and it'll make them bitter too i mean we've all seen that of players who the gm will simply not budge on rest you know the players will start getting a little spicy after a little while right but if there's no if there's no equipment around you then i mean what are you what are you going to do you can't really yeah, complain just, about not yeah it's just an easy explanation like there's no stuff you know you ever walk across kansas it's not like there's a suit of armor laying in the grass <laughs> <laughs> when you're running campaigns like with your long term groups do you just kind of run the campaign until it like fizzles out or do you plan like a certain number of sessions or like a certain like once we finish this story arc, then we're gonna like be done with that campaign. How do you kind of handle like starting mm. a campaign and then finishing it? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I only really plan one session at a time ever um, because I I think doing any more than that is a you know a disservice to the players being in the drivers. Um, but I think we we all know when an ending is coming, not the ending. And I think that tiny little difference can really set a game master free. Um, I think the concept of the ending uh, lives much more in storytelling, but an ending is something that we can reach as a group. So maybe this isn't, you know, the apotheosis <laughs> that someone could have dreamed up, the, the absolution of all the characters and their incredible arcs and so on and so forth, but it is a conclusion. You know, and it's kind of the way that I often will imagine it is, yeah, there was going to be another season of this show, but they actually canceled it after like the fourth season. And that's a really good way to end a campaign, I think, which is there is a conclusion to things like maybe, you know, XYZ big bad guy is destroyed and then the players are lifted up as heroes and kind of move on to other ventures. But we don't necessarily then need to play those other ventures or, or push them in, into an even more epic sort of set of circumstances you know we all know how what's the best example batman the coolest batman stories are batman's origin every single time it's cool to see how he becomes batman but then the far weaker movies or stories or comics are when he's been batman forever and he's like being all batman-y and he's like really epic i think those are far harder stories to tell with any like real emotion to them so for me what I try to do is I, I sense that that point, you know, like we've kind of beat around the bush of this sort of dragon confrontation, you know, a common one, or this demonic confrontation for long enough. You know, now I'm going to kind of try to corral you toward this confrontation. The confrontation occurs with whatever outcome. And then we say, you know, like, and kind of wrap it up and roll the credits. It's not really the ending of the story or the campaign or the world or the characters or anything, but it's something that's satisfying enough to like two days later say, you know, in text, you know, get on your group thread and be like, guys, I think that was the ending. I think now we should take a little break. Let's think about new characters, maybe even a new game, maybe even a new system. But that was amazing. How do you guys feel like about that being the ending rather than, you know, like getting yourself so built up to it? You know what I mean? It's like a you don't want a bad birthday party for your ending. <laughs> is there a certain like length of time or number of sessions that that ends up being, or does it just kind of depend on where you guys are at in the story? I think it's two axes as you as you use that word. That's a cool word. And axis one is the story, which is is tantamount, and then axis two is like player energy. And and we've all seen player energy rise and fall uh, over the 
the scope for some of us over the, the course of decades. You know, some groups, they just sort of live forever. Um, but there are times when we're all psyched. Everyone shows up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with a six-pack of beer. And there are other times when people are like, oh, man, is it Monday again already? Oh, I got to, you know, well, I'm at the grocery store, so I'll be an hour late and stuff. That's an indicator that, like, energy is waning a little bit. So I think your story needs to find a good, satisfying spot, and your players need to be engaged, not pooped out. Uh, because you've played so damn much that they're kind of just, you know, like you don't want that kind of Seinfeld ending, you know, where it's like it's kind of been a little too long and everybody's like, yeah, okay, all right, bye. You know, I, I think it's nice to to go out on a high note as far as player energy. Yeah, and I think that helps kickstart maybe a future campaign as well, right? Because yeah, you're yeah. like, okay, now we can get excited about new characters. And, you know, I was kind of thinking I wanted to play this halfway through that last campaign, so... Every good ending leaves you wanting a little more, you know, rather than being completely uh, sort of stuffed or, you know, having gorged on it. You know what I mean? You kind of, you know, the best meals are like the gourmet meals where you're, you're not stuffed at the end. And I, I think that's a good analogy for a campaign. Um, I think we could talk a little bit about some of the projects that you have worked on and are working on now. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, Art-wise, they're kind of too many to mention on a podcast. So I've <laughs> I've really had the privilege, and and it's just a great time to be honest. It's a a decent living, but it's really just fun of working on all kinds of projects for people as a painter, illustrator, and so forth. And that's been a blast. So there's that kind of side. Um, and as far as my own stuff, I think uh, it's it's been pretty well documented. I kind of uh, basically on a sort of a dare from a friend got into YouTube. Uh, YouTube you know, just led to me being at this fun nexus point of so many questions from people. Like people were just constantly just assaulting me with all these questions about any number of topics, and that really led to uh, building the the index card collections that I did at the very beginning, which are just art. They had no subtext, no anything, and then those gave rise to such a wave of enthusiasm that people wanted me to you know take a stab at a system. And I already had, you know, the sort of system that I was playing at my table and decided to sort of, you know, package it up, so to speak, and 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 publish it. And that was Index Card RPG. Um, and then that led to basically just a water slide of craziness that I never imagined or planned in any way. And so that's been all my projects for the past five years of doing Bearcats and um, Xeno Dead Zone and Altered State with Alex Alvarez as the main writer. Um, and then kind of following a little bit of what my patrons were more and more interested in doing. Um, generally, they're, my patrons are crazy people. They, they kind of just tell me to just do whatever is in my heart, which is just a, a bizarre privilege of a creative person that is just heavenly. But I try to kind of run with their interests, and that really is what gave rise to Viking Death Squad. Um, Viking Death Squad was originally a one-shot that I did at the Absolute Tabletop Convention uh, over four years ago and I was just doing it to be just to be funny it was completely just meant as a gag because uh, I don't really like playing at cons you know I don't really like playing with people I don't know and so uh, I made this this adventure which is really bombastic and over the top about like you know Ozzy Osbourne and base jumping and you know Vikings being thawed out from cryotubes and spaceships and all this crazy crap and it just never went away People just constantly asked about it and wanted it to be more. And so with their support, I got to embark on that. And it took me, I don't know, 14 months or so to do all the art 
um, and to, to design it and then to play test it and realize the first like three versions of it were terrible and had to redesign it again and again and play test it again and, again. and it, that was that was that most recent crazy journey that I took and that journey also got the attention of Modifius who then approached me and said you know hey you you want to do like global distribution and I was like uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> Let me check my calendar. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I got a game on Monday, and uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so those are my my kind of my top line ones, I suppose, or the the Rune Hammer kind of projects. And in the mix with all that, uh, did four novels as well. Um, and I, I got to say, writing novels is extremely difficult. Uh, got a, a massive respect for for fiction writers out there. But that is kind of where my interest still lies, is what I call source material. It's not necessarily the RPG you play. It's the novel or the comic book you read that makes you want to play RPG. And uh, that's where I've come to to Equinox, which is my current project. And that is uh, what's looking like about a 400-page graphic novel. That oh, I think I saw you tweet about some pictures or something from that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it kind of something I've wanted to do since I was about six years old. Um, and I came up reading uh, like No One Gets Out Alive by Jack Kirby, um, and then eventually got into Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. Uh, was always into the Hellboy graphic novels. Um, uh, Usagi Yojimbo, when I first discovered it, came in a graphic novel format. I've always wanted to do that. Or the Gru graphic novels, I loved those. And um, was always honestly terrified of the the skill set it would take, you know, the diversity of drawing capability as well as writing capability. But after, I mean, hell, in two years, I'm going to be 50 years old, which is mind-boggling. After such a long journey, uh, I've started feeling more confident. I kind of ask my patrons, you know, if I did a project that took a year and a half, and it wasn't even an RPG, it was a graphic novel, like, would you be there for it? And it was a resounding yes. In fact, it was, you know, gained a lot of patrons from that announcement. So um, I really have all their support. They pay my bills and uh, got through the first uh, about 20 pages now I've gotten through in uh, just over two weeks and uh, I'm just zoning on it so it's so exciting and so pure after working so hard on RPGs these last five years which, which you know is very mechanical kind of thinking um, but to just think inside of emotion and quality of drawing and quality of flow and suspense and, and elements like that is oh my goodness what what a blast and what a fun change of gears so I really owe it to my patrons to let me do such experimentation. It's awesome that your patrons are that open to different types of uh, products, essentially, not just kind of pigeonholing you into one one section of, you know, RPGs or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, honestly, I I think the the commodity, as you could say, that that my patrons get in return for their hard earned dollars is this sort of uh absolute transparency with the sort of creative experience um i don't think that any one thing is what they're there to collect i think uh and i would like to think that the the uniqueness of my patreon is about revealing this kind of this life and i i think that this life is a uh, something that a lot of creative people are really curious you know what what is it like to go all in and, and what happens you know like because we all know it's terrifying. <laughs> we all know that you have like no safety net and that, you know, creativity that used to be fun can suddenly become a chore and you can lose your muse. You know, all these sort of complex things that people, I think, are just curious about. What is it like to, 
to be out on that limb, you know, and I am way out on the tip of that limb. Um, and I try to be really upfront and honest to week with all my patrons about, you know, sort of what's going on and what it's like, what I'm afraid of and what's working and what's not. And um, I, I think that's really what they get. And so they like to see me change gears because they probably have some kind of sick curiosity, <laughs> like what's going to happen. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about ICRPG um, with you. There are, I, I recommend it on the podcast a lot because I feel like as a, as a dungeon master, you pretty much should just pick up the book for like the GM section alone. And just the, there's just so many good ideas in there that you can steal for <laughs> other games, which yeah. I think is kind of how you built the game, right? You, you meant to be stealable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a hacker's, it's a hacker's tool book. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably why, uh, or what has led me to kind of creating my own style and just, I like to, I always like to homebrew stuff. It seems like with regardless of whatever system it, I'm in, I always seem to be like, Oh, this thing doesn't exist. Okay. Well, I'll just write it, you know, and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I CRPG kind of made me realize that it doesn't have to be that complicated when you're doing some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just so many good things in ICRPG. Um, are there are there any like specific like mechanical bits or like pieces from ICRPG that you like are really fond of having come up with? <laughs> well, um, I, I would say probably the the stickiest piece in there, as far as you know, something that that really uh, seemed to make a difference in in. The hobby that me and you share, which really is is the thrill for me as a creative person. Something that seems to actually like turn a gear somewhere in this massive hobby. Um, I think that is probably the the sort of the three T's as people call them, which is timers, threats, and treats. And like that is so has nothing to do with any system or any really even a genre or a GM style at all. It's kind of just saying put a time limit on stuff. Make sure you give them something horrible and something great, <laughs> you know, like a, a little something that makes them happy and a little something to scare them and then put a time limit on it. And it seems kind of boneheaded at first, but I think that the, the amount of people who have leaned in on that sort of 3T kind of mindset, uh, it just is the evidence itself. It isn't even necessarily about me being fond of it. I think just just the sheer audience reaction um, from things like timers has been so huge it kind of dwarfs a lot of the other things that i've done you know people saying in this many rounds blah you know a shark is going to jump through the ice and you roll that dice and that dice clicks down once per round for some reason that turned out to be quite a novel concept um and i think a lot of people were also pining under a lack of time limits in their games and we've all experienced this you know like scenes that seem to drag on infinitely while only five seconds of game time are occurring you know, I, I think everyone has seen that who's played tabletop at some point or another. And the timer tried to, to push the game through that. Um, so, you know, there's several little nuggies like that kind of in the book. But I would have to say the timer threat treat thing is this thing. Just seeing people use my tools, that tool has been used the most. Like a lot of people will just in their journal, you know, they'll ha- even have like a little pip. They'll draw a little pip for a timer, a pip for a threat or a monster, or maybe it's the environment. And then for a treat, a little a healing, you know, thing or a piece of treasure, 
whatever, and they'll have these little three pips, and they'll just write those for every little piece of content they make. So I think that one has stuck the most. ICRPG's been out for a while. Um, yeah. And as people have, have played it, and more and more people in the community have gotten their hands on it, are there certain things in the system that you would maybe change or tweak kind of looking back on it? Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's there's a sort of a, a no-good solution problem with the idea of, like, classes of character. Um, and this, this is sort of the player-facing side. And by no good solution, what I mean to say is that no, no good solution that I see. And I'm sure there are good solutions out there, but I'm much more of a person who deeply understands game mastering, like that side of the game. When I get into the player side of the game, I think that I understand it just flat out less. And I don't really know the, the good solution for a character kind of uh, delineation system or sort of specialization system that really makes players get that feeling of, uh, I don't know, of basking, sort of. And I think uh, this is a very common side, which is really in some ways has eclipsed um, the Game Master side, I think, in the sort of 5e community. Uh, 5e, as we all know, is, is really masterful with appealing to players. They see all these synergies and possibilities and this sort of future stretching out in front of them. And whether or not they ever even really get to that future maybe isn't even really that important, but there's a feeling there. And I don't think that I am as good at generating those feelings of player excitement as I am appealing to Game Master. Um, you know, like I, I try to do classes and I feel I'm just not presenting as much birthday cake as a player is seeking. So then I go to like class less or like, you know, point build type stuff. And then I feel players are kind of shrugging and saying they're confused. So I, I still have yet to find my happy place when it comes to like making character classes and character progression that are a home run. So if I could go back to ICRPG and somehow, quote unquote, fix that part, um, I think my audience would be a lot bigger because you'd get that player audience. But really, ICRPG is really, I think, a work for game masters. And I think that does you know, limit my focus a bit. Right. Well, and that's probably part of the reason that um, Wizards releases, you know, player player books all the time, right? Because that's the the bigger part of the community. If you can sell books to them, then yeah. And I I think for for what they're doing, you know, it works, and those people are having a great time, and so so rock on. Um, but for me, yeah, the 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 players I have always imagined as sort of a peer to the game master and so it's just as much up to them to create as it is to the game master and i think that's a little bit um that's a smaller group nowadays um than that that bigger group of seeing the path they're going to progress their character through rather than creating that path um and and that those are my favorite players are the creators that that have very little on paper that negotiate with me to create what their character is going to become and how it's going to grow but I don't think that's nearly as large of a group as that kind of, you know, synergy finder. Yeah, that's kind of my, uh, as a player, I'm always trying to like, hey, can I make this magic item or, or research yeah. this new spell or something? Which I think for some game masters can be a little bit difficult if they don't want to touch homebrew or are unsure of how to... Uh, rule some of those things so i think mm -hmm. that they can be a headache for them uh sometimes um yeah. and that's the one thing i liked about icrpg is it's like it doesn't have to be that hard to to make stuff 
Um, and I also think it's a little bit of my game master brain kind of also trying to shove that into a, a player brain at the same time. It just wants to make <laughs> stuff still. <laughs> yeah, totally. And to me, this was always a hobby of making things. Like, that's why... I think people get into RPGs rather than, say, comics, because there's a making. It's making, making, making all the time. And uh, so those those are the players that I relate to the most. But it does give me, I, I think, a little bit of a, a weakness as an author that I don't truly get that, like, you know, Rubik's Cube of, of feats and level unlocks, possible synergy builds and all that kind of... That's just kind of not how my brain works. <laughs> it can be easy... Like if you're writing an RPG to just say, well, you know, here's these, you know, a couple things you can do and then just like work the details out with the the dungeon master. Uh, but then that also puts a lot of pressure on the dungeon master as well. If the player doesn't have the tools to to like do anything on their own either. Yeah. It is kind yeah. of a it's kind of a balancing act there between letting your players have some agency and also not like just saying, okay, we'll just go talk to the game master and he'll figure it out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think like so many things, the the sort of golden path between that those sort of balance points, as you describe them, is just just transparency between the people involved. You know, it's like some players want to make some stuff and come up with things. Others want to just kind of go with the book. Others don't want to be troubled with even thinking about it. And to just lift each of those types up in their own regard. Um, and just use your skills to keep things fair. I, I think that is, in some ways, one of the many skills of a good game master, is to just let people be people. You know, it's like hosting a house party. You know, you don't want to host a house party and only have dubstep people show up. That's not going to be a good party. <laughs> you, you really want different kinds of people to come together, and that's when the fun happens. And as a host, you just, just got to ride that wave because you don't know what form it's going to take. That's the fun of hanging out with real people. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely seen that in, in some of the sessions that I've run where some some players are interested in kind of everything and then other players are like, I'm just, you know, I want to show up. I got my bow. I'm going to shoot stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's and that's great if that's how if that's how they want to play or how they get the most out of it. Um, it's just for me, it's like, oh, I just want you guys to be more invested so that you can make cool stuff. But that's that's my brain trying to go into their brain right. so yeah and the, the, we have a phrase at our table to try to to try to lift that up um, because sometimes the more engaged or more involved player can you know get a little bit more celebration and at our table we call the other side we call it meat and potatoes like um meat and potatoes is like showing up and shooting your bow and and we really like sort of celebrate that at our table like meat and potatoes means it's going to be a fast turn so somebody else gets to go sooner. Uh, meat and potatoes usually means you're like working directly toward the obvious goal in front of you. You know, it's it's kind of a a compliment or a shout out to that simple player uh, that we use. And so I don't even really have to say it anymore. Now my players encourage each other by saying, "Oh, nice, yeah, that's just meat and taters right there. Just three bow shots. Good turn." You know, rather than let me take a look at this odd symbol on the wall. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh oh, here we go. <laughs> Well, especially in combat, things can can start to drag depending on your system. So, yeah, yeah, rewarding or praising players for making quick turns when when it's maybe the obvious choice it makes a lot of sense. Right? Yeah, they kind of forego glory just to get a little bit of work done. <laughs>
don't want to work when we're playing RPGs. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but yeah, but if you got like an HP sponge in front of you yeah. and it's like some, some boring Hydra thing that you've pretty much figured out and you got 240 hit points to go, like, I'd call that work. <laughs> uh, there's a question I saw on Twitter pop up the other day. Um, and it's actually a question we kind of talked about on one of my other episodes. Do you ever change... Um, like monster hit points or anything like if it would make narrative sense for the creature to die do you just let it die or kind of what is your process there uh during during play never uh when writing down in the journal or scribbling on my books which yeah i'm a heretic i do that um before the session almost always so once it's been decided though i i never do it during the session because i feel that breaks the the, the truth agreement between me and the players. Um, also, remember, I play with my book open. So a lot of times, if a player wants to, all they have to do is look to the left and they will see like in pen that it has 110 hit points. And I don't see that as a problem. I, their player doesn't, or their character doesn't know that it has 110. But I don't really mind if the player knows that. That doesn't bother me. Um, I don't see secrecy really as a powerful storytelling tool. So, but I almost always hack their their stats from whatever's listed and and i am a bad boy i take like a sharpie and i'll cross stuff out in my books <laughs> I'm, a, I'm very bad with that <laughs> for as far as players being aware of like the actual or exact hit points that a, a monster has that's never really bothered me either because mm. i always just chalk that up to well if you're fighting it you probably can tell like how much energy it has left or how many bruises it has or you know you kind of gauge how long something is probably going to still be in a fight. I mean, maybe not down to the hit point, but I mean, at that point, does it? It doesn't really make a difference, you know. Yeah, I, I think again, it's like a little bit that that misguided idea that that revelation is super exciting. I, I think that can lead GMs into a lot of awkward places, you know, to think that a player finding out, you know, a certain fact about a, a monster is some kind of big moment. I think that's a, a, a bit of a red herring, you know? I mean, players want frickin' treasure. Let's just be honest. They, <laughs> they, don't, they don't get a thrill from knowing, oh, it has 110 HP. I figured it had 90. You know, that, that is not that big of a thrill. Um, and plus, just like you said, throughout a fight, I'm always telling players, okay, now it looks really bloody or whatever. So I, I think it's really kind of was always above the covers. <laughs> it's just maybe not quite as... As granular, but yeah, they generally have a, a yeah. sense of of things. Or uh, unless people, unless like a character is trying to like hide their true identity or like like mm-hmm. pretend to be like dumb or something, like knowing right. another character's stats or something, really, unless there's some kind of like explicit deception going on, uh, characters or, or people in general can generally kind of size up other other people as to like, oh, they they look like they are good at talking or, yeah. you know, just have to yeah, interact with them a little bit. I think if a game master's answer to that question you asked was, yeah, I just kill monsters when it feels like it's time. I think if you were just to openly, transparently tell your group that, they would not like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say very few players would hear that and be like, oh, great. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel, you know, it's like saying, okay, we're going to play Yahtzee. But I'm going to get Yahtzee when I kind of feel like I should. (laughs) 
well, what do you mean? <laughs> you have to get five of the same number, bro. It's like, nah, I feel like right now would be a really good time for me to get Yahtzee. Oh, got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way that I've seen it presented is you still have some kind of like triggers for it, but but um, so I guess like in the context of uh, fifth edition, monsters have like hit dice, right? So taking the uh, minimum roll that you could get on a hit dice as like they can't die until they've taken at least that much damage. And then the maximum roll that you could get is they can't survive after they've taken that mm. much damage. But then anywhere in between in that kind of threshold, having like, if you score a critical on them, it'll kill them. Or if you, right. uh, if the wizard casts some like super powerful spell or the monk lands every single punch out of, you know, all four punches or whatever, you know, like these kind of like narratively satisfying moments versus, uh, and, but then there's still rules there, right? It's not just, I'm going to kill it when it makes sense. It's like, it's got to be in this threshold and you also still have to do something cool to kill it, but it could die at any time between, you know, those, yeah, and I think that survives the the test that we're going to use to decide if this is a cool thing to do, which is telling your players what you're doing. So you just tell them what you just told me, and as a player, I'm thinking, oh, f- that's awesome. <laughs> I love that. That sounds like a little bit more complex for you as the game master, but if you're into that, I love that version. So if it survives that test, then I say do it. But just openly tell your players that that's what you're doing and kind of look at their faces. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody at the table has to buy into playing, essentially. I think so, yeah. I think that's that's the joy of being so transparent as a game master, is you're always look, you know, using eye contact to decide if any of your techniques are good. You know, you aren't deciding in secrecy if a game master technique is good. You're telling them your technique, either during or before it's occurring, and looking into their faces to see what their reaction is. Just like you would at a party, you know, you don't want to say rude, nasty things at a party and look at the floor. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a person anyone wants to hang out with. You know, you you want that that agreement that makes this kind of this odd social sort of hobby that we do that makes it turn and makes it fun. And I think that's how you get it is you survive that test. When a thing is described, is the table going, okay, yeah. And it does it can sometimes even be not in the player's interest. But they'll say, yeah, that actually sounds fair. That sounds like what should happen. And that's how we build mechanics every single session. You know, we'll say like, well, this bridge is really rickety. So each time you take a turn, I'm going to flip a coin to see if the rickettiness is a factor. Does that sound good to everybody? And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. It's like half the time, you know, like a board falls out from under my foot. Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. So that kind of stuff, it's just right out in the open, not me having figured out all these kind of clever mechanics in my in my lair by myself and not having them discover when they're rocking across the bridge and then you're like oh okay now you got to roll <laughs> you're gonna fall through right the bridge. And they'll be like what do you mean <laughs> what huh <laughs> i mean i'm only carrying like eight swords and four warhammers and three shields like how how <laughs> could i break through a rickety bridge <laughs> i i really like kind of your style of just being super open with the players um it, it feels like that would generate just kind of more um more a little bit more buy-in maybe and then just just so that they they know what they're getting into yeah and a lot of times i don't even write the stuff down they're the ones who are forced to record it and so like the next session i'll be like hey what was that rickety bridge rule that we did could somebody 
hit me back with that and they'll be like yeah every time we took a turn you flipped a coin oh oh, oh yeah that's right and so because they're my note takers during the sessions not me um so a lot of times uh like it, just in this other game i'm in just recently we decided that dwarves um when they fall they don't use decks to try to land and not get hurt. They use con. Because <laughs> <laughs> they just hit, you know? You just can cannonball. So you don't have to do graceful landings as a dwarf. You can just con your way out of the impact. And that's just a little note that kind of came and went. But to my character, that was like, ooh, I, I really like that. So that's on my character. Even though technically it's kind of a game mechanic that my game master, Alex, kind of just came up with on the fly. It's me who cares about it. And so I'm going to write that down and be the keeper of that new rule. And that just makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that your players take take notes. Do you specifically tell them, like, hey, you guys are all taking notes? Or is that just kind of something that evolved through your play? Uh, I go even further than that. I, I buy them notebooks. I literally find like really neato high quality notebooks that have different designs like one player gets like a a grid one one player gets one with like a clear plastic cover that can be flipped in different ways and i i I actively tell them take notes here's a notebook (laughs) and in time you will you will see the beauty of this for now you're going to look at me and roll your eyes but in time you will see the joy of taking notes or i have one player who uses a um like a little notebook like Columbo, you know, like a little spiral that's on the top, mm-hmm. like that can go in your chest pocket. And his notes are the are just solid gold comedy wonders. They're just so messy and so tiny and so unexplained. But for him, it just works. And he's like, I think he's in his second one now. <laughs> so like the first one, you know, I kind of had to tell him, yeah, this is part of D&D. But then when he started getting this real ratty used up notebook, he went and got his own replacement um so especially in the first few sessions i am really really out in the open with what i think would be fun for that particular game and i'll almost always the first about five sessions there's always presents uh, on the table for all the players um and then over time i don't have to buy them so many presents but in the beginning it's like presents are critical <laughs> it sounds kind of silly saying it out loud but <laughs> you know it, it, i was kind of thinking the same thing but then like I've bought my players miniatures and dice and everything, so I guess it's yeah. not. Uh, it's just kind of a thing that I did to help kind of get them into it, right? Without them needing to invest. Not that buying a set of dice is very expensive, but uh, giving it to them is a little bit more fun for them. Oh, it's 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 amazing, and that's true in all of life. I mean, like just little gifts that aren't expensive, but shows that you're thinking about somebody is it's huge. It, it's. Prezies are like <laughs> I'm. I'm a big Prezi guy, so you're probably sensing that right now. But I'm. I'm a really big person with like unexpected little doodads. You know, if we had one session. Uh, just keeping it in the D and D realm, we had one session where at the end we had one of our players had way too much to drink. But he, you know, he he was keeping it together. It's just he was getting a sort of funny sense of humor about things. And we were being assailed by this pack of wolves, and he kept saying over and over i speak wolf which his character sort of does speak this like wolven animal language but like no matter whose turn it was or what was happening i swear for 45 minutes straight he's just like you guys i totally speak wolf (laughs) it was just it reached a point of being so silly so i i actually made him a black t-shirt that says i speak wolf on it You know, which like he can wear, you know, he's like in a metal band and stuff. So that's a pretty cool shirt to wear when you're in a metal band, you know what I mean? So, it, But 
it's you know it's what it's a fifteen dollar t shirt or whatever, but it's cool. It just shows that that you give a rip about a person when you give them a little present. So I'm I'm a huge fan of little presents. Just to circle back on the notes thing, I think that that makes a ton of sense because um, I find it to be nearly impossible as a DM to run a game and also try to take notes at the same time. <laughs> oh yeah, never. I, I can't do it. If you can, I mean, good on you. Party on, but no way. That'd be like being the main character in a sitcom and also writing the dialogue. <laughs> Just like, what? <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we kind of wrap things up? No, I mean, we've we've covered a lot of the, the juicy bits. I, I think the, the most interesting thing, and I appreciate uh, you inviting me. It's, it's always fun to talk about this stuff. Um, I think the, the main thing for me it's, that's coming up that I'm interested to see is that i'm really looking at a year in 2022 where i'm going to be working on you know this graphic novel and i'm going to be a little bit more of just a hobbyist um for a you know a solid year here ahead i'm not gonna be publishing a lot of rpg stuff for a little while um just because i this this recent round of publishing is so big it hasn't even really reached people yet um so i I think that's going to be really interesting to to get back into that to just play games and run my game and enjoy (laughs) and that's kind of that's like my state of the union right now well and it's always good to take a little break and to kind of refresh especially i find that being a player usually helps refresh your your game master brain a little bit so yeah um, absolutely well awesome yeah it was fantastic having you on thank you so much for agreeing to come on yeah thanks for having me really appreciate it Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server. 